Welcome to the Brevard Christian Church Podcast. We hope to encourage you with sermons, stories, and interviews that will challenge you to grow in your faith. Enjoy. chapter, we meet a man by the name of Ahab, son of Amr, king of Israel. And we get a few introductory comments made at the end of the 16th chapter. Then we go on into chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. And there's just a lot of material given to us about Ahab. And Ahab was a really bad guy. But you know, sometimes, sometimes we learn more not just from a good example. Sometimes we learn more from a bad example. So this morning, I want us to take some time to consider the bad example of King Ahab. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed that you're a gracious God, that you love us so much, that we have hope in you. But we want to live our lives as best we can for you. And sometimes the hardest things to see are the things in our own lives. My request this morning is, as we consider Ahab's life, that you'll help us see some, maybe not identical issues, but some tendencies that we have in our own lives that we need to correct. And we want to, God, because we love you. So would you help us have eyes to see ourselves today? In Jesus' name, I pray. Ahab is introduced to us in 1 Kings 16 chapters, the son of Omri, as we already said, and his wife Jezebel. But there are two comments that are kind of made since we have almost seven chapters worth of information about him. I, 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 I kind of put extra significance on the way he's introduced because it's, it's like they're editorializing. It's like, it's like they're saying, here's Ahab. And by the way, Ahab did more to anger God, did more evil than any king that came before him. Now, he is not going to set the record because there's somebody who's going to come later. But up to this point in time, he's as bad as you could possibly get. And the two editorial comments that are made about Ahab right up front before we start even reading about his story is, number one, he considered trivial the sins that he committed during his life. He considered, he considered trivial. In other words, in, other words, uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's the idea of, of taking it lightly, not putting much weight on it, not giving it much consideration. Sin is that which is against God. So in the big picture here, it's not just what he did that was wrong. He didn't take time to think about it. Neither did he reflect on, on what should be. Now, I, I, I'll freely admit to you, I, I guess I'm a little extra sensitive on this, on this very point. I had an uncle that for years was a missionary over in London. You know my uncle Richard, and uh, he's no longer with us. He started new churches up in the Northeast for a while. But one of the things that I heard him say more than once before he passed was the fact that he firmly believed that everybody, be they Christian or not Christian, everybody could benefit if they just made a practice of taking 30 minutes a day to do nothing. Now, I, I, I know as soon as I say that, that, that might sound weird. It also might sound kind of challenging because it's kind of like you hit the road running at the beginning of the day. You just don't have breaks. If you have to get up a little bit early, stay up a little bit later, maybe, maybe take a chunk out of your day uh, over, over the lunch hour, you know, eat quickly. So you go out and be in your car, turn the radio off, just nothing. And by, and by the way, he said this before cell phones. 
<laughs> I mean, if, if anything, we're just bombarded more with just, with just uh, some, sometimes the, the facts are important, but a lot of times, at the end of the day, it's just stuff that we're bombarded with all the time. And, and, and it was his opinion based on his ministry experience, which I've really come to appreciate and agree with, that if people would just stop and think, and maybe, maybe ask some questions like, why am I doing this? You know, where's this leading? At the end of my days, I'm going to look back at this time and, and wish I would have done it differently. Right? Some, sometimes, I, I, I think he has a real point there, because sometimes, sometimes it, it, it's, not, it's not a willful disobedience so much as it is we're just so busy we don't stop and think about what we're doing. Right? Well, I'm reminded of that when I look at Ahab, this editorial comment right up front, because it says it was true, it was light. He, in other words, he didn't stop and think. I, I think that's huge. The other thing that the Bible tells us right up front is not just that he considered it trivial, the sins that he committed in, in his relationship with God, but that he married Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, as soon as I say that name, I don't have to talk, I, I don't think, I have to tell people she's a bad lady because if you want to call somebody a bad lady, you call her a Jezebel because she could have set the records, right? As, as far as being an evil influence. Here's, here's the point I want you to think about, though. As God introduces this king to us, one of the points he makes right up front, I mean, he says, bad guy, worse than anybody came before, didn't think about God and he married Jezebel. I think the other point that he's making is the people that surround you, the people that have an influence in your life. And, and immediately, at, at, again, as a Christian, I, I want to remember, you know, the, the great commission we usually refer to it as. In Matthew 28, chapter, Jesus, Jesus told us what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. We're supposed to be going and we're supposed to be making disciples. That's student followers, bringing people closer to Jesus wherever they are, right? So that involves having relationships and making contact and being around people who, who don't know Jesus, right? I, I'm, boy, I'm all for that. But I think we need to remind ourselves of this. When he gets to the point where the people I'm hanging around with who don't know Jesus, and I'm trying to influence them, uh, uh, bring them closer to Jesus, right? If they're having more of an influence on me than I'm having on them, maybe it's because I'm a little out of balance here because my closest relationships and the people who, who pour into my life and, and have influence over me are not people who are stronger in Christ. In other, in other words, yes, I, I firmly believe we need to be bringing people closer to Jesus. But the closest relationships in our life need to be somebody else who's bringing us closer to Jesus. Right? Okay, with these, with these two kind of guiding principles set out at the beginning, let's just kind of real quickly, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can here, just to kind of review the life of Ahab. First thing we read after we're introduced to Ahab, as far as what kind of king he was, we find in the beginning of the 17th chapter, there's a prophet of God, his name's Elijah, he's from Tishbe, and he comes and he meets Ahab. And he says, Ahab, at my word, and he's speaking on behalf of God, he represents God, he says, at my word, it's not going to rain until I say it will rain again. In fact, it's not just that it's not going to rain, there's not even going to be dew on the ground. You, you're going you're gonna to be looking for liquid, and you're not going to be able to find it, not from the sky, right, or from the, or from the ground. Why in the world would Elijah say something like this? Well, background, back, back up again just a little bit. They are involved in the Baal cult. And if you read about this in, in the Old Testament, Baal is the male, male counterpart to Asherah. Sometimes you read about the Asherah pole or the worship of Asherah. She would be the female counterpart to Baal. Baal and Asherah were tied together and they were a fertility 
cult. And, and I'm just going to leave it at that because you can pro probably already guess what's involved in idolatry that involves a fertility cult. There's prostitution, there's all sorts of things. And, and by the way, I do want to mention that. Because sometimes as modern people, we look back on the ancient world and we think to ourselves, how stupid of them, you know, to bow down to these, these idols and, and do things like that. And yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. But there's always, there's always some sort of appeal. There's always a draw, if you will, if you, if you will, right? And, and the draw here was the sexual freedoms that they found in the Baal cult. Right? Okay. At the end of the day, though, he's a fertility god. And as a fertility god, he's responsible for making the crops grow. Well, that's extremely important because if you don't have crops, you don't have food, you know, uh, uh, life quickly goes downhill. Uh, you don't have water for your cattle. Your cattle are going to die off. You're, you're, you're going to have a lot of trouble, right? Well, he is supposed to cause the crops to grow. He's supposed to send the rain in the proper season. He's the fertility god. So, in essence, the prophet is saying, as long as you worship a god other than the one true god that you think is going to give you fulfillment in this area of your life, here's what God's going to do. He's never going to let you be fulfilled. And I, I, I just find so much here because God does give you free will and you can make your own choices. But if you're looking for ultimate happiness away from God, you're never going to find it. If you're looking for, for ultimate satisfaction, ultimate accomplishment, and sometimes, I, I don't know how far you've gone with this, maybe, maybe it's in the business world, maybe it's in the field of sports, maybe, maybe, maybe it's something on a, on a very personal level. Haven't you found that when you really pour yourself into these things and you set these goals, when you finally reach these goals, do you feel like, yes, I made it? Well, maybe for a second, maybe for a day, but then it's kind of like, well, I guess I need to set a new goal. No, maybe we need to listen to God. Maybe we need to remember that, oh, yeah, it's okay to, to, to do well in life in certain areas, but you've got to have God first. If you don't have that right, you're never going to find the satisfaction. You're never going to find the happiness. There's one other thing that I want to point out, and I'm not doing a very good job of going through these stories. But the other thing I want to I, I want to point out right up front, he says it's not going to rain. Why? Because they're worshiping a God that they think is going to bring them rain. And so God's, God's telling them it just doesn't work that way, right? But not just that. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and one of the things God told those people right off the bat, if you ever start worshiping foreign gods, here's something that's going to happen. I'm going to stop the rain. I'm going to stop the rain. In other words, Elijah is praying a very biblical prayer. You know, reading his Bible is kind of like God's people aren't worshiping anymore. It says right here that God's going to stop. I'm going to pray that it doesn't rain. You get to the New Testament, James chapter 5. Elijah is an, an example for us. This is how God pray. Look at your Bible. Pray the very things that God says to pray. So let's go back to our story. He comes and he says, he, he says to King Ahab, as long as you continue in this, Leading the people worshiping a false god. God, the one true God, is going to stop the rain. How long did that last? Three and a half years. i got to think maybe three years, one month, three years, two months into this, somebody might be scratching their head saying, you know, we keep worshiping this God who's supposed to be saying it's raining and no rain's coming. Okay, after three and a half years with no rain, Elijah shows back up again. And when he shows back up again, he meets a guy by the name of Obadiah. It's not the prophet Obadiah. It's, it's, it's a man who's working for Ahab. He's, he's uh, one of the high officials in the palace. And he's a good guy. We find out he's a good guy because he's been hiding 
some of the prophets of God. Why has he had to, has, had to hide the prophets of God? Because Jezebel is doing her best to put to death all the true prophets of God. If, I, I wish I had more time on this, but can I just drip some water on this? When people get head deep, I mean, when they, when they do a full dive into things that are not good, one of the things that usually goes along with that is they want to shut down everybody who tells them that they're doing something wrong. Right? I, I, I just want to, I don't want to hear that. So not only are they full bore into this, in, in, into this idolatry, they're trying their best to silence everybody who would critique that, everybody who would say something otherwise. So he finally, he talks to Obadiah, and Obadiah's been hiding some of the good prophets of God, and Obadiah puts him back in touch with Ahab. When he meets Ahab after this three and a half year period, here's the first thing that Ahab says to him. He says, Oh, my enemy. He, he knows he's a prophet of God. And Ahab identifies him as the, the enemy. Shorthand here, Ahab saying, it's your fault that we're going through all this problem. <laughs> it, it, it's called blaming. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with blaming is when you focus on what other people do wrong, a lot of times they really haven't done wrong. But even if they have done wrong, it keeps you from focusing on the very thing you need to focus on. What you should be doing in your own life, right? We call him the enemy. It, it's your problem. And Elijah shows up and talks to the king. And he says, listen, it, this has gone on long enough. You know, how long are the people going to waffle between uh, uh, not really being committed to God and following Baal and, and sometimes coming back to God, but then going back to Baal? He says that we need to put an end to this. Let's have a decisive Contest. So here's what he suggests. Ahab goes along with it. In fact, everybody goes along with it. The people think this is a good idea. They're going to have a contest. It's going to be on Mount Carmel. And on Mount Carmel, all the people are going to meet there. And all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, that's 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, 850. By the way, government-subsidized prophets of Baal. They get their support from Jezebel. Right? The government-subsidized prophets of Baal and Asherah show up there. And here's the contest. Elijah suggests, listen, let's, let's see who can prove themselves to be God. So you set up an altar, and we've got some cattle over here. You pick a bull. I, I, I'm not going to give you one. You pick your own, because I don't want you to say later that you didn't give us a bull. So you pick your own, and you set up an altar, and you kill the bull, and you put the meat of that bull up there on the altar, and don't like the sacrifice. You pray that Baal will send a lightning bolt from heaven to light the sacrifice. Now, before I go any further in this story, remember, Baal's responsible for the rain that comes out of heaven. This is actually, this is actually something on his resume, right? It's something that he claims he's good at. In fact, in fact, archaeologists have found one of the oldest, one of the oldest uh, statues that we've uncovered of Baal worship, it's associated with Baal worship, is this squat ugly little, little figure, right? With a lightning bolt in his hand. Because he's responsible for the stuff that comes out of the sky, right? So in, in essence, Elijah's saying, let's make this easy. What are you good at? Okay, you're supposed to be good. That's what the contest is supposed to be. Lightning? Okay, we're going to make it a lightning thing. You pray to Baal and ask him to send a lightning bolt and burn up the sacrifice. And then I'm going to build an altar to the Lord God of Israel. And I'm going to ask him to light the fire. 
So they all agreed to it. They're thinking, yeah, this is one thing Baal could do. They make their altar. They prepare the meat. They put it on there. And they start crying out to Baal all morning long. In fact, the Bible tells us they start cutting themselves. Right? They also go over here and kick down Elijah's altar. They're doing everything. Why? Because they're trying to get sympathy from their God. And about noonday, Elijah, I guess he just can't resist. He starts making fun. You know, uh, maybe he's away on vacation. <laughs> you know, maybe he needs a little yell a little bit more. Maybe he just fell asleep. You know, he's kind of poking fun. But all morning long, early into the afternoon, all afternoon long until the time of the evening sacrifice, he gives them plenty of time. Guess what? No lightning bolt. We're not surprised, right? And finally, Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. And so he has to go over here and put the altar back together because they kicked it down. He puts it back together. He prepares the bowl and he puts it on top of the altar, the 12 stones there. And then he has some servants dig a trench around his altar. And then he has them bring four large containers of water, dump it on top of that, that prepared meat there and the, and, and, the, and the stones and the wood. And it starts to fill up the trench. And he sends it back a second time. They bring four more large containers of water. Sends it back a third time. You understand what he's doing here? He wants to remove all shadow, all possibility of doubt. He doesn't want anybody to say, well, and it hasn't rained three and a half years. All you have to do is, you know, just, just you, you know, you pulled out your lighter and, and you just got close and we didn't see it. In there. He's going to remove all shadow of doubt here. He drenches the thing. It's just covered with water. Everybody sees that. And then Elijah, once the sacrifice is prepared, prays one basically simple prayer that in essence says, God, please prove yourself to be the one true God. And as soon as he prays that prayer, the lightning bolt, the fire from heaven comes. And the Bible tells us it doesn't just hit, it doesn't just hit and burn up the sacrifice. It burns up the meat, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and all the water. And it's like it's all vaporized. As soon as he prays, it's like, bang! And the whole thing's just smithereens, right? Smoke and ashes. It's all stuff. And nobody missed it. Everybody who's been waffling before, they all, with one accord, start saying, The Lord, He is God. It's kind of like, yep, He won. He won, right? And so what does Elijah do? He seizes the opportunity. He takes 850 false prophets and executes them. Got to get rid of the evil influence. I'm curious, though, because we're trying to overview the life of Ahab here. How does Ahab respond to this? He and his wife get mad. There, there, there are some people, or I, look, maybe it's better to say it this way. There are some times in people's lives, it doesn't make any difference how much evidence and how much proof you present. If you don't want to believe it, you're not going to believe it. And Ahab dug in his heels. He and his wife made it a goal. We need to get rid of Elijah. So Elijah goes on the run for a while. That's the end of the 19th chapter. In the 20th chapter, God uses a different approach. I am just, I'm just overwhelmed with how many chances God gives Ahab. Because after all this evidence, after this decisive proof, here's what God does next. He sends another messenger to Ahab. And he says there's armies that oppose him. In fact, it's the Syrians. The Syrians, the Syrians formed an alliance of 32 kings. That's pretty impressive. 32 kings. They come together to fight against Israel. And God sends another prophet to talk to Ahab. 
The prophet says, here's what God's going to do. God's going to give you a victory. Do, do, do you see what God's doing here? God didn't just show how foolish it was to do something that was wrong. God's always is going to show him how good it is when you align with me, when you do something right. In fact, in the 20th chapter, he does this two different times. He gives them two victories. And this, this is just totally an aside here. But my favorite quote from King Ahab's lips comes in the 20th chapter. When Ahab says, he who puts on his armor shouldn't talk like him who takes off his armor. He's talking to the opposing king who comes in and tells him, in essence, we're just going to wipe you out and everything. Well, guess what? God gave him a victory. Why did God give him a victory? Two times, by the way. Because Ahab finally followed what God said. He said, what do you want me to do? Well, I want you to, I want you to let the junior officials lead this battle. Well, who should lead them? You should, Ahab. Ahab followed exactly what God said, and things went well. Two times. But by the time you get to the end of the chapter, after he's had a victory, Ahab's right back to doing things his way, even though God didn't want him to do it that way. Ahab had a warning on the negative side, and he had an example on the positive side. And he just didn't think things through. So you get to chapter 21, and chapter 21 is a, is a personal episode in Ahab's life. There's a guy who lives close to him. His name's Naboth. Naboth has this vineyard, and Ahab really, really likes that vineyard. And so he goes and he talks to Naboth, and he's, he's like, for so many different reasons, this is close to me. I, I've, I've got all the money. I can pay you any price. Sell me your vineyard, Naboth. And Naboth says, I, I wasn't looking to sell my vineyard. In fact, I'm not going to sell my vineyard because this is for my family. It's not a money thing. It's a family thing. Well, Ahab, when he figured out this guy's not going to sell the vineyard to him, he went home and he started pouting. And his wife comes to Jezebel. And she sees the king depressed, pouting on his couch. And she asks, what, what's the problem here? And he explains to her, I wanted this vineyard and the guy wouldn't sell it to me. And she said, aren't you the king here? Get up off that couch. I'm going to get that vineyard for you. Ahab knew his wife. And he didn't say, Jezebel, what are you going to do? It's not what he says. It's like, oh, good. Here's what she did. She wrote some letters. In fact, she used his signet ring to make it seem like he was the one writing these letters. And sent orders to the officials of the town where Naboth lived. And told them to proclaim a fast. It, kind of like a religious ceremony where everybody would have to come out and participate. And at this fast, hired two guys who would, because you had to have more than one witness, right? You had to have two. Hired two guys to say that he cursed the king and he cursed God. That's exactly what they did. They, when everybody was there in the town, they came forward and said he cursed the king and he cursed God. Well, they took him out of town right away because you had two witnesses and the punishment for that is stoning to death. They killed him right on the spot. When they sent the word back to Jezebel, we did what you said. Jezebel goes to Ahab and says, okay, he's dead. You can take the, you can take the vineyard now. Now, what does Ahab do? I know there's not a lot of detail given to us, but there's no remorse. There's no questioning. There's no, there's no, well, how did this happen? No, you know what he did? Oh, great. He wants to go look at his vineyard. And so he runs over to look at his vineyard. It's kind of like, it's mine now. It's mine now. And when he pulls back, you know, some, I don't know, some of the great vines or whatever, who's standing there but Elijah the Tishbite. And what does he say last time he called him the enemy? This time he says, oh, you troubler of Israel. You, you, you see what he's doing here? I didn't do anything wrong. Oh no, there's trouble coming against because it's you. 
Man, you just fail to see what's going on in your own life when you get too focused on blaming other people. It's exactly what happens to Ahab. So here's what, here's what God says through Elijah. He says, God has given you so many different chances. Your time is up. The dogs are going to lick up your blood. In fact, the dogs are going to eat the flesh of your wife and your entire family. Whether they be in the fields trying to run away from this or they're caught in the city, no one will escape. You're not going to have anybody sit on the throne after you. This is a huge thing that day. Whoever took, up, took the throne after you, he wanted to be one of his children. No, no, it's all gone. When that judgment is pronounced on Ahab, Elijah leaves, and Ahab, as best we can tell, first time in his life, stopped, stopped what he was doing, and thought about how he'd been living his life. He puts on sackcloth. That's the sign in the Old Testament of mourning. Sackcloth, because it's, it's horrible on the skin. It makes you feel bad. You want to wear something that's going to make you feel bad. Sackcloth, ashes, not eating. And he's finally humbling himself before God. So God sends Elijah back. And he underscores the fact they have you finally did something good. And because you humbled yourself, this punishment's not going to come in your lifetime. In other words, you're not going to see your family fall, your wife die, and all that other stuff. All that's going to happen after you die. If Ahab would have only continued a little bit more, but he didn't. In fact, I'm convinced that's why the Bible tells us one more story before we get to the end of Ahab's life. In chapter 21 of 1 Kings, we find out that Ahab wants to regain a town called Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead is to the north, and they used to have it in Israel, but the Syrians took it in one of the previous battles. So he asks his friend, Jehoshaphat, who's the king down in Judah, to come up and help him fight against the Syrians so they can get back Ramoth Gilead. And so when Jehoshaphat comes up, which, by the way, Jehoshaphat is a godly man. And when Jehoshaphat comes up, he says, I'm happy to help you if it's God's will. Do you have any prophets so we can ask of the Lord if this is God's will? It's okay with him. And Ahab says, oh, yeah, I got prophets. I got prophets. Calls in 400 prophets. These 400 prophets, oh, I, I wish I had time to go into this because it's so hilarious. They put on their horns. It, put on their horns. Uh, have you ever seen those old operas where somebody comes out with that helmet on with big horns and says, okay, the prophets sometimes will put on their big horns and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is this all about? Horns in the Old Testament represented power and strength because the animals that had the horns, those are the ones you have to watch out for, right? And so sometimes they would put on the horns to make themselves look impressive, right? So the, the prophets put on their horns and they start prophesying and they say, God wants to give Ahab a great victory. Joseph had Jehoshaphat turns to Ahab and says, don't you have any real prophets here? <laughs> can, can we pause on that for just a second? I, I know some of you, you've been coming here a long time. But I'm, I'm, I'm guessing some of you haven't been coming here that long. I want you to know something. I want everybody to know this. In fact, you already know this. I'm just going to remind you. If you don't like what you hear here, you can find some place where they're going to tell you something you like. If you look long enough, you can find someplace teaching just about anything. At the end of the day, I hope, and I don't want to say this in a bad way, but I hope, your goal isn't to hear what you want to hear. 
I hope your goal is to hear what God has to say, what you need to hear. Because you can always find somebody to tell you what you want to hear. So Jehoshaphat says, don't you have a real problem? He says, well, here's what I am. He says, this is almost a direct quote. Yes, I do, but I hate him. Because he never tells me what I want to hear. <laughs> Jehoshaphat says, well, we need to hear. We need to, we need to know what God really wants. So he sends for him. The prophet's name is Micaiah. Micaiah shows up. And he says, yeah, go ahead and fight. And Ahab says, so how many times do I have to tell you? Tell me the truth. Micaiah says, well, this is the truth. God does want you to go and fight. And he wants you to go fight against Ramoth Gilead so that you will lose and so that you will die because your time is up. And Ahab turns to Joseph and says, see, I told you, he never tells me what I want to hear. <laughs> he has to throw him in prison. And then Ahab goes out to fight anyway because here's his strategy. He's thinking to himself, I'll go into battle, but I'll dress like a common soldier. I'll have Joseph dress like the king. Josephat was a really good guy, but he wasn't really smart. He goes out and he dresses up like the king, and in the battle, all the Syrians start chasing after the king until they figure out that Josephat's not the king that they really want. They do win the battle of Ramoth Gilead, the Syrians do, but one of the soldiers randomly just pulls his bow back and he lets an arrow fly. The Bible tells us that that arrow goes into the sky and just so happens come down in the chariot where Ahab is standing right between his breastplate and some of his armor. And it pierces so deeply that Ahab starts to bleed out and the chariot starts to fill with blood. He loses the battle and he gets back home just in time, just in time to arrive at the very place where Elijah made the prophecy and a pack of wild dogs comes up and starts licking up the blood of Ahab. Ahab didn't take time to stop and think about the things of God as a bad choice. For whatever the reason, if we're just too busy or we don't take the time, we don't stop and think about how we're living, it's a bad choice. Ahab didn't surround himself with good people. That was a bad choice. When we don't have good godly friendships, folks. It's a bad choice. Ahab was always blaming other people for things going wrong in his life. It's a bad choice. When you and I get in the rut of pointing a finger at other people and what they've done without taking a look at ourselves, that is a really bad choice. But Ahab, one time in his life, humbled himself before God. It was the best choice he ever made. And when you and I stop and take a good hard look at ourselves and say, God, I know. I know I'm the problem. I need your help. It's one of the best choices you can ever make. In Luke, the 15th chapter, Jesus tells a story of three stories, really. But one of the points he makes is when somebody repents, when somebody stops 
and humbles themselves before God. There's more rejoicing in heaven than 99 good people who don't need to rejoice. I'm telling you, it's not an easy thing to do, but one of the best things you could possibly do is just push pause. Take some time. Humble yourself before God. Do you remember the day you were baptized in Christ? It was a humbling experience because you were literally burying yourself and saying, it's not about me, God. I don't have you. I don't have, I don't have a hope. Which, by the way, if you haven't been baptized in Christ, why, why haven't you humbled yourself to do that? If you have, would you remember it? Would you remember your baptism? Or would you remember this? God's against the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Before we leave, let's pray. Dear my Father, forgive us for whatever reasons Sometimes it's because we're so busy, sometimes because there's other things that concern us. But God, forgive us. We don't stop lay our lives before you. God, forgive us when we're so focused on what other people have done. And even if it has been hurtful, God, we ask for your help so we can be on that and look at ourselves before you. God, I just want to say it again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because of what Jesus has done for us, it doesn't make any difference how bad it's been. It doesn't make any difference what we've done, what we've become. Our hope is truly in you, and we know that, and we affirm that again. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Brevard Christian Church Podcast. We pray you are encouraged and blessed. And until next time, grace and peace to you.